0: Welcome to Celluloid Citizens, a podcast about film. I'm Sean M.
1: Thompson. And I'm Brian O'Connell.
0: And on this week's episode, we're going to be discussing The Killing of a Sacred Deer, put out by A24, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, written by Yorgos Lanthimos and Ephthemis Philippou, and starring Nicole Kidman and Colin Farrell and others.
1: It's uh, It's an interesting film. Interesting is definitely a word. There's a lot of... This is a very easily one of the stranger things I have seen in a theater, um, and I'm kind of surprised it got as wide a release as it did. But I, it's by one of my favorite directors, Yorgos Lanthimos, who has uh, done two other movies I love, The Lobster and The Favorite, in many ways very similar, but also quite different from this film. I think this film is perhaps the most esoteric of those three and I haven't seen his earlier films
0: which is uh, definitely a bold statement considering he doesn't make normal films. No,
1: he does not. These are very the word the word I would use to describe them and I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily assign a particular like thematic philosophy to them or anything but stylistically, I would describe them as absurdist films, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I, I consider myself an absurdist, and I, I think all of the films I've seen of his, uh, The Lobster, Killing of a Sacred Deer, and The Favourite, all have absurdist elements. Yeah. Which is essentially, you know, life is absurd, and death is absurd.
1: Yeah, but it isn't just it isn't just thematically. I think the style of the films and the acting and even the cinematography has this very, I mean, let it be said that this film is hard to classify in a particular genre, but if I had to come down on it, I would describe it as a low-key horror film or a thriller. Yeah, I would say... Probably horror.
0: Not necessarily psychological horror, because that would imply a range of human emotions, which we'll get into, (laughs) but clearly very stilted with that um i would yeah i would say maybe a maybe not even necessarily i was gonna say a quiet supernatural horror but it's not all that quiet
1: it's it's very i mean i think we should probably just delve into describing the the plot and the and the style but i would i mean we always discuss spoilers and we always have to put a spoiler warning but this is a film right
0: so big spoiler warning this one's definitely you don't want it to be spoiled if you haven't seen it Although I would argue it is a film that I, know, I knew, I watched it again and I knew the ending and I still managed to enjoy it.
1: Oh yeah. Well, the, the fatalism. But first time watch,
0: you don't want to know what's happening.
1: Yeah. And it, it sets right off the bat, kind of subverting expectations or pushing the limit with, uh, the first shot is a shot of actual open heart surgery.
0: Open heart surgery at length, uh... This is one of the few times this episode, I've, this is actually, I just finished watching this film for a second time less than an hour ago, which I almost never do. So I can tell you, I was trying to eat a turkey sandwich (laughs) and then, and I forgot and the film started and I was just like, I had to cover my, my eyes and ask my girlfriend, like, is it still going? She's like, yeah, it's still going.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's quite, I mean, it's quite shocking and a very striking image to open the film on. And with, it has this very, like, almost, like, exaggeratedly melancholy, like, choral music over it that's, like, setting this very doomy tone, and... It like it inspires body horror,
0: and it is just held too. It's like a long. It's probably like what three like, minutes?
1: At least a full minute, I would say. That's how long it felt to me, and that feels like an eternity.
0: And It does feel like an eternity in film because you're getting everything in like thirty second to minute long. It's
1: very, it's a very unsparing shot, and while I, this isn't really gory, although there are a few upsetting moments of of bloodshed. It is one of the few moments of actual gore in the film, but the, the emotional shock of seeing that, I think, sets the tone for the kind of sadistic situation these characters are put in. I've heard people describe his films as heartless. I don't know if I would totally subscribe to that, but if there is one that is ironically heartless it is probably this one because
0: the one that starts with open heart surgery yes yeah it's
1: it's it's almost against i don't know if
0: i would say his films are heartless i would say that they're very exacting in their technique and that they play with human emotions in a way that most people don't bother to do with their films
1: absolutely
0: like most people you're starting with a realist narrative And even if it's an absurdist narrative, everyone's speaking with like regular human inflection, like regular emotional pathos. Yeah. I would say someone like Yorgos is similar to David Lynch, where they realize that like even dialogue, even the human voice is an integral part of the film. And you can manipulate that in such a way that it brings about a certain emotion in the audience.
1: Yeah, this is a director who is using extreme artificiality to tell a more uh, emotional or psychological story than than an than an actual like realist one, but I mean the mo- the most notable example of that is in the acting, which I think the performances.
0: Yes, the acting is very uh, stilted. Is the word stilted?
1: Um, it's so. I mean, and I think. Don't get me wrong, I think the actors are, are very, very good in this film.
0: They do a good job. When we say stilted, we don't mean that they, they have a bad performance. We mean that the direction for them was, it seemed like it was something along the lines of, like, be bar- be very flat and don't really react to anything, no matter how, like, it, everything is the same reaction. It's like, someone getting a watch is the same reaction as Colin Farrell, and this is a big spoiler, telling his son that he wants jacked off his dad
1: <laughs> which it's I mean like I, I the opening scene where there the two Colin Farrell is walking with another and uh, with an anath- anesthesiologist sorry um down the hallway and they're just talking about watches it's a very normal conversation i guess but just the way it's spoken like every every exchange in this
0: yeah i'll do my best to like i'll do my best to impersonate something along the lines of like that is a nice watch
1: where did you get it
0: i got it 10 years ago oh I noticed you have a metal strap instead of a leather strap. Yes, I prefer the... You know, it's just this very, like...
1: Unnatural. Why are you talking like yeah. this? Yeah. And I... That's what... Like, it is an unsettling effect in many ways, and it, it makes even the most mundane scenes feel very, like, strange and unearthly. But it also...
0: Yeah, there's this weird quality to the film. Sorry, I didn't mean to no, interrupt no, you. No. Um, uh, where it's like, there are scenes that are so tense, and it's just... um. And I forget the child actor's name. Uh, I think
1: he goes by... Sunny St- uh, Soldier.
0: His name's Steven,
1: right? Who's the... Oh, the character? The character. Of the teenager. The teenager, yes. Oh, that's... Um, Did we ever learn his name? Martin.
0: Oh, sorry, Martin. I think Steven was his dad. Um, uh, a scene as simple as Martin eating spaghetti and talking about how his dad used to eat spaghetti the same way, <laughs> is as tense as Colin Farrell, like, with the same kid tied to a chair punching him. Because everything has the same weird emotional... There's a weird emotional weight because nothing has an emotional weight. I don't know how to describe it.
1: Yeah, it's very... It's just tense. It's like... It's tense. It is. But it. I also find it frequently very funny and i would i would say that the other side of this as a as a it is a horror film and it is actually in my experience one of the more disturbing horror films personally for me that i've seen but it is also this the same affect can be very humorous in its own way and Right, depending on the scene, it can be very funny. Well, that scene you mentioned earlier, where for no reason Colin Farrell starts describing um, having masturbated his father as a teenager, it comes out of nowhere.
0: I mean, ostensibly, the reason is he wants to tell, it's like, he wants truth or dare type thing. He's like, I'm going to tell my son this really horrible thing, so my son will admit that maybe he's... Uh, and we'll get into it, but maybe he's faking this whole illness where he's like paralyzed and can't
1: eat. yeah. and he just he just goes off and tells this extremely like upsetting story, but it's it's, it's very like in another
0: film that would be like that would be like a pivotal character moment <laughs> and that would be what we go back to. yeah. in this film, it's just tossed out and never mentioned again.
1: yeah. And I, and it extends to other scenes. There's like there's the scene where he just mentions that his daughters started menstruating to a colleague.
0: Right, and it's out of nowhere. They're at like a a doctor party or he's there oh he's there receiving an award or something
1: and they're just having this banal conversation and then he's like oh yeah my daughter
0: yeah it's like oh do you like that cocktail it's a very good cocktail i stopped drinking and then he's like my daughter started <laughs> menstruating for the first time and everyone reacts normally with like the, as if he was talking about oh i don't drink anymore
1: yeah i mean and and another one is when they're eating dinner and it just nicole kidman says we all have lovely hair and it's just, it's just it's like it's really unnatural and i i mean i feel like the first time i watched this by the end i was literally wincing in my seat because it gets very suspenseful particularly in the last like 15 minutes but this time i appreciated the humor in it more and i find like i just find the weird blank expressions they all constantly have just it's it's both disconcerting and very, very funny at the same time. I, I really...
0: It's very funny and disconcerting. I don't have an official thing to cite from, but I've read that uh, the human mind is actually... People are more disturbed by someone without an expression than someone with an angry expression or a sad expression, because, you know, even if it's like the most angry person... Sense you know this person is angry and you know how to react. But if it's someone with a very flat voice, with no expression, you don't know how to react. You're like, Are, is this good? Is this
1: bad? What? That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And getting into the more specific nature of the plot, this is, accordingly with that with that idea, this is a film that wants you to be unsure about how to feel.
0: Oh, of course. Yeah, and nice st- second time around, I still don't really know how to feel about a lot of it.
1: Yeah, it's very... Like, Colin
0: Farrell's character isn't exactly a hero. No. He's, I mean, a former alcoholic who apparently botched a heart surgery. Yeah. Because he was drinking, I should say.
1: It's very... The situation he is in... Is is like as soon as as soon as that stake was set up, I was like, "This is gonna be some. This is gonna be really fucked up." And it and it it is because well, we'll just describe.
0: Yeah, it might be easier at this point to just go into the actual plot. Colin Farrell's character, who of course I don't have the name in front of me. Uh, Steven. Is he Stephen?
1: I think he is. Steven. Okay, good. All right.
0: So Colin Farrell's character of Stephen. We begin the film. You know, he's just finished having uh, performing surgery, and he meets with Martin and you don't really know why they hang out. You just assume it's like a mentor kind of a thing, or maybe it's a friend of the family, and, you know, they...
1: It's very ambiguous because... And I I was watching it with my brother the second time today, and... He assumed there was something, like, inappropriate about their relationship because he's, like, giving him presents and there's just a general, like...
0: Yeah, it's open-ended, you know, he gives him a watch, he's, like, walking walking by the pier, smoking a cigarette with him, I think he got the kid an ice cream.
1: Yeah, it's not, it's clearly not a normal, exactly, arrangement, but we don't exactly know what the nature of it is Uh, uh, definitely not exactly at the start of the film no
0: but as we go uh we are introduced to steven's family uh nicole kidman who plays his wife whose name i'm sorry i don't have in front of me anna anna okay and he has the
1: names aren't used very frequently at any rate and he
0: has a daughter who i think is probably like 15 uh I think she says she's fifteen at one point. Yeah, and then there uh, a son who's uh, probably eleven or twelve.
1: Yeah, sounds about right. And everyone's very stilted. They live in this beautiful neighborhood. You know,
0: sitting at the dinner table talking about their hair.
1: <laughs> it's very strange. and I, I don't know what exactly what the thematic um intent of the film is, and we'll we'll discuss that a little later. But they live in this very uh like bougie, upper-class suburban neighborhood. They have a lovely house.
0: For most people, you would think of as an idealized neighborhood, you know, nice big house and nice quiet uh, suburb with nice trees and furniture and all
1: that. They have a dog. Their kids are musical. It's very, like, a nuclear family-esque, although obviously subverted by this weird affect they all have. But we we eventually learn that Stephen, while drunk during an opera, uh, while dur- while performing surgery, botched the operation that would have saved Martin's father's life, and that he's kind of hanging around Martin. I guess. Out of some sort of sense of guilt? It's sort of like, sort of
0: over-residual guilt. I also got the sense it was sort of blackmail. Yeah, a little bit. Like, they never explicitly say it, but I got the sense that maybe they kind of falsified, well, obviously falsified the uh, medical records because they didn't mention he was drunk, and that's why he screwed up the surgery.
1: Yeah, he's out of some sort of sense of responsibility or guilt or criminality. He's just watching over Martin. And at first they seem to be relatively fine, but it goes wrong when Martin invites uh, Stephen to his mother's house. And his mother makes extremely weird flirtatious advances on him. She talks about his
0: hands, and then she starts kissing his hands and sucking his thumb. Um, And there's a really great line she has when he gets disturbed, and he's like, oh, I gotta go. She's like, you must have my, I will not let you leave until you've had my tart. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just like another very absurdist, like she's trying to cheat with this guy and he's like no and she's like well at least have dessert
1: yeah but it's
0: not even like that comedic it's like so much flatter than how i
1: see it <laughs> yeah it's very late like- um
0: played by by the way alicia silverstone who i've really loved lately her career has seemed to consist of like shorter uh shorter roles in indie horror films She was in The Lodge, too, in the very beginning of The Lodge. Yes, I'd love to cover that at some point, too, but she does a great job in that. But it's a similar, like, very damaged, broken woman who sort of is a pivotal element in, like, the tragedy of the horror film.
1: Yeah, I, I haven't seen The Lodge yet. I really want to. But certainly... I saw it in the theater. It was great. Oh, yeah. It's on Hulu now, right? I'll check it out at some point.
0: Uh, I'm not sure. But yeah, I would highly recommend it. But anyway, so yeah.
1: So Martin takes this rejection of his mother's advances badly. You get the sense that he kind of wanted Colin Farrell to go with his with his mom so then about literally about an hour in the the plot really starts to kick into gear
0: and it's funny because i forgot it too it's it's so tense that you just think i know i thought this on the first watch oh it's just gonna be like a cat and mouse thing where this kid is like a stalker
1: yeah no and
0: he's just bothering colin farrell and his family and then, yeah, once we're an hour in, Stephen's son, he's like, I can't feel my legs, and they take him to the hospital, and that's when it's revealed that, or shortly after that, that, that there's sort of a supernatural thing going on, and if Stephen doesn't pick one of his family to kill, they're all gonna die eventually
1: and he outlines this in three steps which i find i don't know the weird specificity of it made it somehow more unsettling he's like first yeah
0: and i thought at first because i read i read this time it was uh based on a play by euripides if virginia and alice
1: yeah partially which I, I
0: don't know anything about but i thought like oh okay so this is probably from the play but no <laughs> that's not from the play
1: he he says their legs will stop functioning and they'll be paralyzed from the waist down, that then they will start to refuse food to the point of starvation. And finally, they will bleed from their eyes. And a few hours after that starts, they will die. And that this will happen to all of Stephen's family if he doesn't sacrifice someone. Right.
0: But in true In true Yorgos fashion, this is said over a lunch in a very, like, flat, sort of like, I'm sorry to tell you this, but these are the three steps that will kill your family. Like, there's no, there's no heart behind it.
1: I love, like, uh, Yorgos, Stephen is like, I need to get back to work. And Martin, who's played excellently by Barry Keoghan in this movie, he just kind of, like, is like, oh, okay. And he, like, kind of rushes it out as if, like, trying to keep it convenient for him. And then he's like, all right, any questions? Like, it's like, like a sales meeting almost. Like, he's just, like, you know, bureaucratically presenting this awful information.
0: Yeah, it's like he's mentioning, like, oh, by the way, we're having a party this weekend. And it's like, bring your, I don't know, bring dessert. <laughs> it's 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 i mean and that's and and then immediately colin farrell has him taken out by security but yeah it's very and then from there yeah the rest of the film is just like watching as steven's family succumbs to this strange curse almost i say supernatural it's never explicitly said it's supernatural but it's kind of heavily implied yeah
1: it ultimately i mean to me I, i i i assume it's supernatural not necessarily like a specific thing but just like that this person has uttered the consequences and they're just going to happen no matter what the explanation is and it's very compelling to watch and i'm gonna say a word that sounds emotional but i have to emphasize that it's played in the most unemotional way possible uh steven just like panicking not literally but like dealing with the situation for the rest of the film and just like stressing out about what he's going to do as the as the consequences just escalate and it's very like i don't know I, this is where the the odd unemotional tone starts to become less indicative of like something uncanny to me and more to just like profound depression because it goes to some very this is a very dark um scenario and you just have these shots of steven just sitting naked and like in his chair or like weeping outside and just like these numb like horrified emotions and it's very like it's very stressful
0: yeah i guess one interpretation could be like they're people that are so depressed they just don't have anything left yeah
1: and i mean going back so the title does come from a euripides play um about the goddess Diana, who whose sacred deer was killed by I believe Agamem- Agane-
0: Agamemnon,
1: Agamemnon, something like that. Yeah, and that he was meant to sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia as a as a tribute. So you get the sense that it's like it is a tragedy in like the very classical sense of the word, and that it's these people whose fates have been determined by like a godlike force. And they're just unable to react in a way that that works for anybody.
0: Yes, um, I did want to bring up, and I noticed this, I think, a little more on the uh, on the rewatch. Towards the end of the film, people are still stilted to an extent, mm-hmm. but people kind of open up a bit. Some the characters start to actually convey like real human emotions, and they're less stilted. Like for instance. Colin Farrell breaking into tears like he hasn't really shown any emotion other than maybe a little bit of anger uh before this and this is just him flat out like like ugly crying outside his house yeah and at the same time that happens the camera stops being because most of the shots have been very static up to this point this is when I noticed there's one scene where the camera has sort of a handheld quality where it's not completely level it's sort of shaking a little bit oh yeah and while there aren't any other shots i noticed that were as like you know steady like you know as steadicammed or as handheld they speed up everything starts to speed up in terms of like how the camera moves there's more movement yeah the cuts are quicker and it sort of coincides with everyone's sort of slowly unraveling and being a little bit more emotional which is why i think you know the whole stilted thing might have been it obviously was for a reason one of the reasons i think is possibly so that when this ending when everything starts to ramp down it has more emotional weight
1: yeah perhaps that that makes a lot of sense I do want to talk about the cinematography a little bit because you mentioned it, and it is by, I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Thymios Bakatakis. I think I got that right. Um, But one of the interesting things that is quite noticeable in the film is the amount of headroom in a lot of these shots that these characters have, like, it's the top of their head, and there's an enormous amount of space between them and the top of the frame and it it almost gives the sense of something hanging over them or their insignificance in the face of these events along with just general more like i guess like kubrickian style zooms and like slow slow tracking motions but it really i mean it really conveys this sense of overall in combination with the editing factors that you mentioned this sense of like inevitability i guess is is the word i'm looking for it's very
0: yes i would agree with that there is a very it does you know i didn't know it the first time but knowing that this is and it by the way it's very loosely based on this play from what i've read yes like there's not really immediate analogs no other than steven's supposed to be uh, agamemnon and you know he has to sacrifice his children but it does sort of in a weird way play like a stage play.
1: I could see that. I mean, it's just in terms of how I,
0: hmm, I don't know how to even how to describe how it reminds me of a play just something about the pacing and the dial something about the dialogue despite the fact that yeah. there's not that much emotion behind it does seem like sort of like like a greek tragedy, you know, like a classical
1: theatrical play
0: and that might yeah. also explain the stilted quality of it, like it's trying to be this very like like we all have beautiful hair, you
1: know. Like- <laughs> yeah. No, I mean it is. I mean like there obviously tragedy is a very broad word. Um but it isn't like it is a tragedy and I would agree that it's theatrical, but it's not it's not like shakespearean tragedy where somebody has like a fatal flaw and they've been doomed by their own decisions. This is a No, I would say
0: the fun thing is that no one really learns anything, do they?
1: No, and that's what that's what that's why it reminds me of those old aside from the obvious um, you know, basis in in Greek theater. That's why it does really remind me of like almost like a mythological story where the characters are totally at the whim of the gods and you know it's not really it's not moralistic or anything it's just punishment that's it's not nobody yeah you're right nobody does seem to learn anything or
0: like no one is i mean i guess you could argue that at the end and well yeah we we had to get to this at some point um This film has a very shocking ending. Yes. It consists of Colin Farrell duct taping his family members because he can't decide who to kill. And he's realized at this point he has to kill one of his family members or they're all going to die. So he duct-takes them and covers their heads with, I believe, their pillowcases, puts a knit hat over his eyes, and grabs a rifle and spins around in a circle and fires off shots randomly.
1: It's so... It's one of... it. Honestly, it's one of the most nail-biting scenes I've seen ever. And when I first saw this in a theater, I was just literally wincing. And, like, the... the I mean, I, I hesitate to say great, but the really, um suspenseful thing about it is because... Obvious, he misses a few times, so the gun goes off. He misses,
0: yeah. He doesn't actually hit one of his family members until the third shot, so it's puts it down, puts his hat down, he spins around, shoots.
1: It's like every time there's a shot... Lifts it up,
0: he hasn't hit anyone. And it, it goes on for
1: a, a while. It's like a jolt, and it's just so... I also just love the, the s- like incredible surrealism of the image of him just spinning around. It's like this... Normal family, not normal, but should be a normal family, in a normal house yeah, it's
0: like a regular family in a f- regular family home, and he's got a hat over his eyes, and he's spinning around with a rifle, and they're
1: all blinded, and it's just and and it, so and the thing to point out that we were just talking about is and this is important. This is why he it isn't like uh an educative or a pedagogic tragedy. It's an arbitrary choice. He does it because it has to happen, but he doesn't make a decision, you know? He just...
0: No, he doesn't pick, I'm going to kill my wife or I'm going to kill... It. No, it's he has to do it completely at random because he can't decide. He actually has... He is so torn, he goes to his children's school to talk to their principal. <sighs> like, which one has better scholastic aptitude? Okay, who is behaving better in class? <sighs> And then he, like, just at the end, just very desperately is like, if you had to pick between one, who would you say is your favorite? And the principal says, well, I, I don't know that I could pick one. And he is clearly so angry because he's like, he just wants... To
1: pick one.
0: Someone else to have to decide. But
1: he can't do that. He has to decide. And and think about the, the way that all of... This is kind of darkly humorous, but it's more dark than humorous. The way all of his family members start to like kiss up to him in the in the second half of the movie
0: i know his son and they're all and another beautiful thing happens in terms of his absurdity people these kids at least start moving around without the use of their legs so they're just kind of <laughs> crawling around and it goes to like crawling down the stairs and crawling down the street and
1: yeah oh that's it's just really surreal when, to see when she's um when the daughter kim is like like slouching down the staircase like a snake it's like it's so creepy to me it's just it's skin crawling but it's also here's one of the funnier sequences to me it happens um preceding when he tells that story about masturbating his father, he is, like, furious about the situation and still in denial about it at this point. So he picks up his son and just basically tells him to walk and then just drops him on, like, the hospital floor. And he's, like, picking him up.
0: Yeah, he's like, you need to walk. You need to walk now. And he tries and he falls and he tries again. He just, like, drops <laughs> he's his like, son who clearly has no use of his like legs. He's, like,
1: shaking him as if he's trying to get, like, like a puppet to walk. And then he just drops. And it's, like, it's it looks painful.
0: I mean, it's something, like, out of Monty Python. <laughs> it's,
1: like, it's that absurd. But, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a very... It's a very unique film, and he's a very unique filmmaker. I, one of the other kind of, I don't know. I I, I want to talk a little bit about, and this this is something that eludes me still, and it's something that Lanthimos obviously deliberately hasn't been entirely clear about. But what the what the film is trying to say, I I find the the scene early on where. Nicole Kidman's character is about to have sex with Stephen and she lies out on the bed like an etherized patient.
0: Yeah like he literally she asked him you know general anesthetic and he says yes. So you get the sense this is a regular occurrence you get the sense that there are different levels of anesthetized <laughs> he tells her to act yeah. like. Yeah. And this time it's general anesthetic and then it's like that's clearly the only way he can perform but I think I think if there's any reason for it, and if I, th- if there were any kind of moral, which I hesitate to say this is even a moral, but if there was anything I took from the film, like there was a purpose, the scene at the end, so, uh, this big spoiler, uh, he ends up killing his son. The person he ends up shooting is his son, and ironically i believe Mm -hmm. he hits him in the heart uh which i don't think i noticed on the first watch but it's like i'm pretty sure he shoots him through the heart
1: yeah oh yeah that yeah
0: and there's all this heart imagery he's a cardiologist we get the open heart surgery people are always talking about their hearts yeah Uh, at one point martin goes and complains my heart hurts and it's hereditary and my dad died from a heart thing so there's all this talk about heart and yet no one really seems to have much in the way of like a metaphorical heart in terms of until the end, we see this family who haven't really been together all that much other than, you know, when they had to plan to kill each other sitting in this diner and it's the daughter and the husband and the wife and Martin comes in. You get the sense that Martin told them to show up so he could know who was who they actually sacrificed. And they seem weirdly complacent. I mean, there's probably the relief like, oh my god, I don't have to kill any more of my kids, and this is finally over and done with. But they seem, in a weird way, the rest of the family seems almost happier than they have for the rest of the film. And I think if there was anything to take from the film, it's it's this weird kind of embracing of life. You know, it's like all of these characters have lived this very... um anesthetized existence you know in this like beautiful sub this beautiful suburb where nothing happens and it's like they're so boring they're talking about their hair at dinner and then this this like very tragic event comes and shakes up their entire lives and there's this huge tragedy but at the end they're happy to be alive that's at least and i think even that is giving maybe a little it's sort of me putting my own interpretation on that, because they aren't, like, they're not smiling from ear to ear. They're <laughs> just eating at a diner.
1: Yeah, but they've never eaten... T- well, so I I hadn't thought about it that way, and I definitely... I mean, the thing about them being anesthetized, I, I would... I, that's very insightful, because this is a movie that could be seen to have some sort of like, I don't know if it's a social statement necessarily, but like it is this kind of surreal distorted picture of like a suburban American family. And I know-
0: I think in that way, it's sort of like something like, say, the Stafford Wives.
1: Yeah, it could be.
0: Where it's critiquing suburban culture and the way it makes people anesthetize. It makes people so complacent. That they become like so boring, they're willing to become monsters. Well,
1: yeah, I think like I think um, one of the lines. It was a very small, insignificant line, but one of the things that stuck out to me this time was when Martin's visiting um, their house, and he's asked about where he lives. He says, "I live in a not so nice house in a not so nice neighborhood." and i'm not saying there's like a class angle there or anything but it does seem in some ways to be about like this kind of almost spiritual emptiness of this like kind of bourgeois like upper class suburban family and that this the i don't know i don't know if i'd say they're happier necessarily closer by the end but this circumstance has forced them into a reckoning with actual reality and with consequences and suffering in a way they may not have been. So I would say they undergo some sort of transformation.
0: I would say so too. And I think also, if there is any comparison between the Euripides play and the actual film, it might be because Stephen is supposed to be King Agamemnon.
1: Yeah. So
0: that might be, it's like his big suburban house is basically a palace or, a, you know, a kingdom. And uh, I believe the character of Martin is supposed to be... um Oh, I'm blanking on what the term they would uh, basically a soothsayer.
1: Uh, an oracle. It's
0: supposed to be like a mystic.
1: Or or a fury like an avenging angel or something. Or a
0: fury, yes, something like,
1: like that. But like I think like there is this line that stuck out to me. It's one of it's very subtle, but I think it it had to be intentional. They're at martin's house and they're watching martin's favorite movie which is of course groundhog's day uh and
0: just another added little bit of absurdist spice
1: (laughs) yeah it's like it's also like that scene where the daughter sings this like utterly wooden rendition of whatever pop song uh but but as as they're um watching it at the very start of the scene you hear a little bit of the movie and it's i haven't seen groundhog's day in fall but there's this... In the clip that's on the TV, you hear a character saying to Bill Murray, you're not a god. You're not a god. And that might be the moral of... Not the moral. Well, perhaps the moral. In that Stephen is has enough hubris to believe himself godlike in that he's a surgeon. He wields literal power over life and death. You see him at these, like you know he delivers that keynote speech about how powerful the technology
0: he has this really just typical surgeon joke about like the first you know open heart surgery was performed by da 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 in germany in 1854 and you know that patient is still alive today but sadly the doctor died in unfortunate circumstances so it's one of the rare instances where the Surgery was a success, but the doctor didn't make it. And it's just like, oh my God. (laughs) And the whole crowd. Just like completely making light of life and death.
1: And he talks about like, I mean, like how revolutionary the technology is. And again, going back to those scenes, he has, he wants to have sex with his wife as if she's like an inert body, an object. And when he talks about, I noticed this is very subtle when he brought up the menstruation thing at that uh party, I noticed Nicole Kidman he kind of cut off Nicole Kidman's character, but Nicole Kidman's character like winces a little bit almost like she just like like makes a little little sharp motion, and I think it might be attacking and again, obviously his most glaring crime is he believes himself so godlike, so above the the rules of of man that he he gets drunk while operating on a patient but i think i think the film if anything is might be a subtle attack on the hubris of this figure who like king agamemnon he dares to defy the gods to behave as if he's a god and he's punished for it and it gets tied up if i mean i don't think this is a film particularly interested in a social statement but it does get tied up no
0: and it's not necessarily interested in telling you a clear message either this is we've both seen this now twice and this is like this is us, like, struggling to kind of come up with what we think is the interpretation of this film. Yeah. But there are many interpretations of this film. Yeah.
1: and But, like, I think, like, you know, I think about, like, especially films from the 70s, some of which I haven't seen, I'll fully disclose, that were, weren't, were like, they weren't um, Marxist statements or anything. Or maybe they were, I don't know. But attack attacks on a very specific type of of bourgeois class and it's this it's this man who's affluent who's male who is has the ideal suburban life and you see this figure come up from underneath who punishes him for for transgressing and he his whole insular existence is disrupted by it so i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of possible interpretations but i do think it is ultimately a film that doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily interested in the meaning or the the theme of the circumstances so much as just what what its characters how their how their characters react or don't react.
0: I would agree with that. I wanted to mention Jack Ketchum as a short story, "The Box," which reminded me a little bit of this film in terms of uh, the supernatural afflictions that you know the disease of uh paralysis and then not wanting to eat that the family members go through something similar happens in jack cashman's uh story the box it's a family on a train around christmas and um one of the kids sees a stranger with a box and he asks can i see in the box what you're getting you know your whoever for a present so the stranger agrees kid looks in the box and then he just won't eat anymore and no matter what they get him you know his family tries to get him pizza it's his favorite and then they try just ice cream or like you know, sweets, and just nothing happens, and he starts wasting away. And then that kid whispers what he saw to his... I believe it's to his uh, sister. And then she does the same thing. She stops eating. All the way to the mother who... Is you know one of them whispers what they saw, and all of them just like slowly waste away and die. And the end of the story is the the father is left, and he's like goes on the train every day trying to find this stranger with the box so he can see what's in the box and be back with his family.
1: Yeah,
0: Uh, and it reminded me a lot of like this this film in terms of just this could be seen as a metaphorical affliction uh just being co- like just losing all power
1: yikes and
0: the only person who is still around who still has any power is the you know the father figure
1: this like this inefficacious like male authority like I, like in both i i haven't read this story it sounds really upsetting so i must seek it out post-taste
0: haste. is very upsetting it's one of the most upsetting stories i've ever read um
1: i really i i, I am way. Way, way, way behind on Jack Ketchum.
0: I mean, like, he, his, the girl next door, and they made uh, a good film adaptation. It's based on a real, um I want to say the name was Sylvia Likens, uh, a real case about, like, abuse that happened. um I can send you the information on it, but, and I might be getting the name wrong too. There was a, a great film called American Crime where they did it like a, a more realistic interpretation that has uh, Ellen i believe it's ellen page in it just horrific stuff where the neighbor would like put cigarettes out on this teenage girl and then have her son and like the other boys like you know torture this kid and it actually happened yeah it's just have like anything surrounding it whether it's the girl next door whether it's the film of girl next door whether it's the actual you know just awful I don't even remember where I was going. Jack Ketchum is, like, the best. Yes, okay. You And anyway.
1: But, but yeah, no. I mean, like, but Stephen is... I mean, he's been given all of the determining ability in this situation. But what fascinates me is that he still feels helpless. And if you look at the other family members, both the children and the wife, they're taking a much more active role in this situation because they're going to be the victims of it ultimately while steven is largely in denial about it and just kind of stressing over it and i find that very i find that dynamic very interesting that the person who's most responsible is like paralyzed emotionally while the other
0: i mean it could also be seen as like in um, a metaphorical interpretation for Something like the US government or something like the patriarchy. Yeah. Where it's like you have these people at the top that are just sort of for whatever reason paral like like not literally but metaphorically paralyzed, like and they're making decisions for children and for women and they don't even know what they're doing they kind of just want to like ignore it and like you know at one point there's this great line uh even has where it's like you know it's like nicole it's later on in the film so it's like his kids are both paralyzed and not eating and his wife is worried she's going to be next and he's eating something he says oh this is really good you know i've been craving some mashed potato if you could make mashed potato tomorrow that would be great and it's like his kids are his family is literally dying around him And he's just like, you know it would be good? Mashed potatoes.
1: And Nicole Kidman just flips out at that point. But just
0: flips out at him like, I'm going to die. Like, fuck you.
1: Yeah, but so that's the thing, though. Like, these decisions are in his hands, but they're of... It's not of him they're of consequence to. It's everybody else who's actively suffering. And he's the one who has to truly make these like sweeping life and death decisions for other people and that i mean like again i don't want to ascribe an overly political or social meaning to it but it does have resonance with you know with be it like patriarchy or like a, a class system or what it's very it's just it's a film you could i feel like and this is only one angle but it's a film you could explore for for ages and still never come to a full understanding of it necessarily
0: and i think yeah i love those kinds of films obviously we've covered a lot of those types of films already on the show and we've only done at this point we're on uh, episode nine i think
1: nine-ish uh, Yeah,
0: we only have six available right now um I was gonna say and there's this very tenuous link but there is one kind of playing devil's advocate and i did this with uh, no country for old men too there is a scene where i thought i hypothesized like maybe this could imply that this character is supernatural there is a scene in this film and it's very subtle but the the daughter is talking to the brother saying i'm so sorry that you have to die can i have your mp3 player when you die yes and on first watch you could think well she's just being cruel to try to like break this kid down so he just agrees to be the one who gets murdered but there is another interpretation it could be and it's been established because there's a scene earlier where she's in the hospital and she gets a phone call from martin and he says i'm outside and she's able to stand and walk to the window and you know talk to him and you get you get the sense they have this sort of psychic connection almost like he is able to make her stand just by talking to her and they've had this relationship they've been like falling in love
1: as as in love as any of these characters can possibly be uh,
0: falling as in love as any of these people can yes And there's one interpretation where it's like she knew all along that she was going to live and that the brother was going to get killed and that from the beginning she knew about this whole thing that was going to occur. And she is planning to just run off with that kid because at the end, too, one of the last shots we get as they're leaving the diner is the daughter staring at Martin and Martin staring back and she does this very sly sort of micro smile. So and I interpreted that as like they're still gonna date despite all that's happened.
1: I would agree. I would say that. I mean, all of the, um, all of the family members exhibit their own degrees of awfulness and uh, treachery. I one of the toughest scenes to watch for me is when Nicole Kidman, after trying to have sex with with, uh, Colin Farrell's character, is like, you know, I just think we should kill a child. Because we can have another child. Or if you need an IUV, like, it's just very bizarre. (laughs) It is. And it's
0: simultaneously absurdist and just so dark. But yes, continue.
1: But yeah, so, but I mean, it's really, it is Kim, the daughter, who seems, one, to be the closest to Marden, obviously, but two, to be the most willing to, like, step on other people, basically. I mean, she, I mean, the most glaring example of that is when she literally tries to escape the situation by just crawling away on her knees. But yeah, I I think at the end, you do get the sense that she especially hasn't been too torn up about the whole thing, because she is like, there is like a definite exchange of glances that occurs between her and... Martin.
0: and there's a very interesting like very these are very subtle and open to inter- interpretation as well but when they're all uh duct taped up right you don't get to really see the daughter's reaction you don't really get to see um the wife's reaction you do see the son's reaction he's like you can tell he's screaming and shaking his head no no no
1: he's the one who's most and
0: you could wonder like why is he like because like obviously they should all be scared and yet he's the one that reacts the most
1: yeah and it
0: could be because he's the youngest yeah but there is an interpretation where it's like the daughter knew she said look you're gonna die sorry and she somehow knew
1: yeah and she there wasn't there a line like where she was like i just know these things or something like that.
0: Yeah, there is, but there's definitely a, a link between them, and even if this is a stretch, she definitely is in love with Martin, and it, you get the sense that they're going to keep going. There is an interpretation where she knew all this was going to happen all along. They've been hanging out, you know?
1: Yeah, they have. That is That is true. They do have a bond of some kind that that i I mean like yeah she it is it is accurate that um at the end as he's putting the pillowcases over their heads uh bob is the one who seems the most frightened the wife seems kind of cold and so does so does the daughter so yeah there is a there's a definite i don't know and and like You know, Bob was also the first to fall sick.
0: It's an option. The thing is, yeah, by like saying specifically like this, like I'm not saying specifically this is what happened. I'm saying it's how I'm interpreting it. And it's why I love films like this. It's like I can have a completely different interpretation than someone else. And you still enjoy the film just as much.
1: Yeah. And this is just, this is just a very subtle film too. And there are a lot of these types of undercurrents to pick up on it's very symbolic very abstract in its approach there's like i mean again like this when he's eating his spaghetti it should by all normal you know, for all intents and purposes just being normal should just be him eating spaghetti but it's so tense there's this just weird vibe to like like as ever as
0: it, and it's completely absurd too he's like i was told that i eat spaghetti just like my father and then he goes on to say what everyone's been thinking like Although I I found out later everyone eats spaghetti the same. It's like, yeah, everyone, you spin it with the fork. That's what everyone does.
1: Yeah, yeah. But it's also that Martin is both the cruelest but also perhaps the most wounded character in that you see in that moment a little glimpse of the pain he experienced, although the pain is obviously very uh, obscured by, by this weird affect. But yeah, it's just like, Oh, I have to mention the most, one of the more viscerally upsetting scenes that when I saw it in theater, in a theater, um, you know, there had been some laughs. It had been generally quiet, but this scene was eliciting total gasps. Uh, at one point, Stephen has kidnapped Martin and tied him up in the basement, and Martin explains his philosophy by first biting Stephen's arm very brutally and then saying, you know, oh, I could apologize, but that wouldn't make you feel better. And I could, you know, stroke your wound, but that might make it feel worse. So there's only one thing that you can do. And he just, for like an extended shot, bites into his own arm. And spits it. He takes
0: a huge chunk out of his own arm, like rips the flesh off like a dog.
1: And then I, this is both hilarious and very dark. He's like he's like over this. His mouth is full of blood, and he spat out whatever chunk of like skin he tore off. And then he's just like, "Do you understand?" It's it's a metaphor.
0: <laughs> his blood is leaking out of his mouth.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's almost a little nod from from the director.
0: I feel like it's the the director sort of having fun with himself. Just like this super visceral thing and he's like, get it? It's a metaphor.
1: Yeah, I mean, like that's, and I like, that's what, um, I forget what review I read of it. I apologize in advance, but someone analogized that to what the film is doing. It's putting you through a deeply upsetting harrowing experience and then telling you like deadpan it's a metaphor (laughs) and like it's just very basically it's it's a great movie i love this movie
0: it's a great film i did want to compare it to and i know you haven't seen that much david lynch but blue velvet comes to mind which is another similar and i haven't seen the film in a while but it's basically um you know a character in a sleepy suburb finds an ear and then we go from there Oh, like he finds like a severed ear in the grass. Uh, And it's, but it's just like this seemingly idyllic uh, suburban landscape that is overrun with these nefarious characters. But there is this weird vibe to it, this weird kind of stilted quality. And granted... People actually have emotions in Blue Velvet, but it's a similar sort of just very surreal, like open to interpretation type of film and just very deeply odd but funny at times.
1: I, I, I Again, another artist I'm way behind on is Lynch. I need to... I mean, I think Blue Velvet's on Prime, so I need to watch that post-haste, but yeah, very... Um...
0: It's not my favorite Lynch film. I think my favorite Lynch film is probably Lost Highway but again as stated i'm like a hardcore you know horror nerd and that i would say that's one of his more horror-ish films
1: mm, yeah i've seen the plus it's got patricia arquette that i used to have a huge crush on anyway there's a i've seen the one scene with that guy who calls his home or something and he's in the house it was very strange
0: the telephone man
1: yes yeah it was very he's great at moments it, like I that. i will
0: say also it's a revolutionary film and it was one of the first ones where i learned bill pullman can actually act <laughs> i was like wow he can't act. i think it was bill pullman's because you know he was in like Independence Day before that, and you're like, I mean, he can sort of act, but he's gone on to do The Sinner, and he's like great in it, and you're like, oh no, he can actually act, okay.
1: And speaking of actors, we've been using the word stilted and wooden, and you know all of that a lot, but I would like
0: oh everyone does a, a brilliant. I would argue it's much harder. To have the pathos when you're acting in this way, and Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman and the child actors and the the actor who plays Martin, they all do a tremendous job.
1: Yeah, Martin, I thought especially has like he conveys quite a lot, like because he is like somewhat awkward and stammery, like a like a teenager would be, I guess. But he's at the same time, and I know this was part of uh lenthemosis intent but he's both like like a fairly like straightforward teenager in many ways and like this harbinger of like divine justice and evil and all and it's like very like
0: and he and he he embodies both types well like he he simultaneously comes off as an awkward teenager and as like this weird total power uh, soothsayer this weird mystic who communicates with the gods
1: yeah he's very uh, there's a lot of i mean there's a lot to appreciate here i don't know if i would Necessarily, immediately recommend this to. It depends on the person. Oh,
0: I would say in terms of the order of films you should watch from Lanthimos, not
1: the one to start. I'd with. say
0: probably start with The Favourite. Yes, because that's I think the most accessible. Then probably the Lobster, and then this one. And he did Dog Tooth, but I've heard Dog Tooth is like just so harsh. So probably do that last.
1: I I have yet to see Dog Tooth and his other. I want to
0: think. I want. Uh, sorry, I want to say it was called Dog Tooth. Yeah. I think no, that's what it was. It is
1: Dogtooth. Uh, I haven't seen his Greek language films, which are Dogtooth and Alps.
0: Oh, that's true, too. I'm not even mentioning the Greek language films. I think I started watching one of them and it was very odd. I can't remember which one it was now.
1: Dogtooth is the one about the parents who've like raised their children in their house their entire lives teaching them like the outside is a very dark, scary place and they have to just I mean I
0: believe so, yes. He's
1: very like every one of his movies in its own way is like a little slice of hell where these characters are trapped in pretty brutal, albeit darkly comic, um, circumstances. But this is easily, of the the three that I've seen, and I do intend to see more, but of the three that I've seen, this is simultaneously the, the harshest, the most unconventional, the hardest to pin down to an actual specific genre, and the most obscure and alienating because you can kind of pick up on what the lobster is trying to say and the favorite... Yeah, like, the
0: lobster is very weird, but it's fun in its way, you know? It's like, oh, it's like people are dating, and if they don't get a date, they turn into yeah. an animal. So it's like, the stakes are already so absurd, you know? It's not like you have to kill your family. It's like, Colin Farrell needs a date, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, and
1: and And there's a lot more humor.
0: And then, and the favorite, I love the favorite so much. I would say that's probably my favorite <laughs> of his <laughs> I didn't mean the pun, but that's probably my favorite of his
1: films is The Favorite. I really like The Favorite as well. I think it's... We should talk about that one at some point, but it's... We should definitely cover it at some point, yeah. That one is this kind of... This very, like, grim wit you see in these two movies. It's, It's much more lively and fun in a lot of ways in The Favorite because... You have this this trio of amazing actresses, and it's like a vicious power struggle, and they're grappling with each other. And it's just kind of,
0: it's much more... And yeah, Olivia Colman, like won an Oscar for her performance.
1: Justifiably. I, I forget. Oh, God. And
0: she had such a great Oscar speech, too. It was literally something <laughs> along the lines of, huh, wow. <laughs> Who would have thought? Like, like, she clearly is just like,
1: huh. Oh, Oscar. Okay.
0: Yeah. Because she like 100% didn't think she was going to win.
1: I um I thought it of the nominees that year I thought it should have won Best Picture but it went to Green Book which is the worst thing. Ugh, let's, uh, let's not ever cover that. That like every every time I think back like oh uh Moonlight won for 2016 and The Shape of Water won and uh oh what what won in like 2018 what was the movie they decided and I think Green Book. And I never actually believe myself. I have to look it up. But you're like, it couldn't have
0: been Green Book because Green Book wasn't very good.
1: <laughs> but yeah, no, but 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 off track. Yeah, start with the favorite, go to the lobster and do this if you... Because he is definitely a very specific taste, you know? He, he has a... I mean,
0: I've made the, the... I've already made the comparison, but David Lynch's films, I think, have a lot in common in terms of, like, when you're watching... A Yorgos film, you know it. When you're watching a David Lynch film, like, you know it.
1: Yeah, it's very idiosyncratic, um, very... And this film especially is not... um, I mean, The Lobster has a lot of humor. I think this is more of a piece with The Lobster than uh, with The Favourite, not just because Colin Farrell is in both films, but just the kind of, like, bizarre... Delivery and tone, but at The Lobster, and I rewatched it fairly recently. Even the Lobster has a lot more like I don't want to say whimsy, but comedy.
0: I mean, there's like life-affirming stuff in the Lobster. There's like you know, you could see it as like everything sort of works out. That's one interpretation.
1: <laughs> yeah, and but there's and there's also just there's just flat out almost like slapstick scenes in the Lobster to me.
0: Yeah, there's stuff with like a toaster, which is like that's such to- a Yorgos thing, where it's like someone is. It's like the punishment is someone has to have their hand like stuck into a toaster, and it's like that's just so simultaneously cartoonish and just dark.
1: Yeah, and there's, uh, I mean, like I, we could, we should just do Jurgis as well. We should
0: wait until we cover the lobster. But yeah, yeah right? but yeah, there's just like it. There's a lot to take.
1: Yeah, but this film, while there is, I do maintain um, a lot of humor that I noticed much more on the second time when you're not as immediately... Well,
0: because you're not... Like, the first time you watch this film, you're just so, like, reactive. You're just, like, in so much peril. Yeah, Because you... It's just so stressful. But but the second time, when you know what's happening, you can sort of see the humor more because you're not blinded by just the sheer terror.
1: Yeah, and it is... I mean... It is quite scary to me. I, it's one of the, it's, it's a low key horror film, but it is a horror film. And it does, especially when he's spinning around. I mean, I just, it just, it gets under my skin, but more so than just being a horror film, it feels like a film that's not on your side, if that makes sense.
0: No, this film does not want you to be happy.
1: (laughs) It's, and it's not just like, I mean, like I've seen other horror, like Get Out. You know, it's scary, but it's a movie that's on your side. Even movies like The Witch have some sort of, like, take the view of the audience in a lot of ways. There's a bit of
0: catharsis, yeah, like, at the end of The Witch. Like, you have this sort of sense of, like, of triumph, for lack of a better term. Yeah. I would compare this film, and I've mentioned it before, but I would say The Lighthouse has a lot in common with uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer.
1: The Lighthouse? The Lighthouse, Where definitely. Where it's like, it
0: just isn't trying to make you happy, and there's not really a point? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, um, I think the one I, I mean, just talking about good horror films, I think what I'm trying to, it's kind of similar to Hereditary, in that it's, it's really a film that's, like, a literal, like, punishing experience. And its, it's instinct to just be upsetting and brutal is, like, borderline sadistic. At, like, because they're just... It's just an unforgiving scenario. And that reminded me... I mean, Hereditary, like, even Midsummer has catharsis, definite catharsis. Hereditary is just unremitting bleakness from start to finish and nobody wins and it's just...
0: But it yeah, in similar fashion, Hereditary does have the absurdist slant to it. Like, especially when there's like a... Uh, spoilers for Hereditary, but you should know this by now if you're listening to this. We spoil everything. <laughs> uh, there is a scene where there's a headless corpse floating into a treehouse, which is just like so simultaneously surrealist, and also just, like, bleakly funny.
1: Yeah, there's a lot like, of... I don't know if
0: that was how it was supposed to be seen, but I just, I was, like, stifling a laugh when I saw it in the theater.
1: There's there's more humor in Hereditary than people give it credit for, I think. But it is, um, bleak humor. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like I've read interviews with Ari Aster where he said he was modeling it on, like, the Greek tragic mode because... The These are characters who their tragedy is not necessarily their choices, but they're just utter lack of control over the scenario. But yeah, I mean, this is even this is a very unique film. And it is, I mean, it's not like you say A24 horror movies because they've garnered a reputation for horror at this point.
0: But this is not... Uh, I would say at this point in the game, like, A24 puts out the best horror films. I want to say they did The Lodge, too, but I might be wrong about that. That's Neon. That was Neon. I apologize. Uh, Neon has also been doing good work lately,
1: but... Uh, Oh, yeah. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Parasite... But, But, I mean, like, but A24 has... I mean, in my opinion, the crown for just good horror movies from a single studio.
0: Yeah, like, because, like, I mean, even going, like, they've gone back a while. I want to say that they did uh, It Follows, right?
1: Oh, maybe. I don't know. Uh... I, I
0: want to say they did. But they've, you know, they've kind of had the indie horror game on lock for a while, what people would call elevated horror, which I hate that term. <laughs> but, I hate that, too. Um, But, you know, like, let's say prestige horror, you know, like... I prefer prestige horror because it doesn't imply that horror is this terrible genre that you need to elevate from. Prestige just implies it's good.
1: Yeah, or like, or like art house. Art house horror, yeah, something like that. It's not, again, not implying superiority, just a different approach. But but at any rate, even among those films, The Killing of a Sacred Deer is very different, I think. It's, v- it's very different from... Like most films I've seen. It's
0: just, yeah, you can't, like, when you when you do a podcast about film analysis and you can't even tell your listeners, like, what genre this film is, you know it's, like, a severe mindfuck.
1: Yeah, the genre I would feel most comfortable placing this in is Yorgos Lanthimos, because whatever genre... Yeah,
0: he's like David Lynch, he just has his own genre. And
1: I, I that's not to underrate it as a horror film or as an absurdist comedy... But it is a film, I believe, that really could only have been made by him. And that puts it with, with like, auteur cinema in some ways. But I, I, wrapping up at this point, I don't know if I should say to go watch it, but if, you're, if this sounds like your thing... You
0: gotta be, it's like, you gotta be in the right headspace. It's like Beast of No Nation. It's a great film. But you really, I don't know. You gotta know yourself. Like, if you're someone that, when you're having a bad day, you like to see really depressing stuff, then that I'd say watch Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yeah. If you're one of those people that has to be in a really good mood to watch something really depressing, because otherwise it'll drag you down, you know. Do that. Just, just like don't go into this like expecting like a fun Saturday night movie like you can watch with your friends, because that's not what this is.
1: No, it's a film that is about it's about punishment and that's what it feels like when you're watching it punishment but in a good way it's a great movie but in a good way because it's
0: very pretty to look at and there are good performances and there are very beautiful people in it
1: yeah they're, they're all they're all great as
0: my girlfriend said and i don't know whatever i'll say it. she was like it's so hard to be attracted to colin farrell because then he's in this movie <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, yeah, that's fair. I would wholeheartedly recommend this movie if you, if you enjoy being depressed or enjoy, um, like unpleasant, film going experiences, which I do.
0: I do too. And that's why we make good (laughs) co-hosts. So yeah, wrapping this up, uh, this has been Celluloid Citizens. I'm Sean M. Thompson.
1: I'm Brian O'Connell.
0: And hopefully by the time this episode is out, we will have a Patreon. There's going to be mini-episodes. There will be a mini-episode on Midnight Gospel, and we're going from there to figure out what the next one's going to be. But until next time... uh you know, enjoy your depressing Colin Farrell films where he acts like a weird
1: sadist. There's there's nothing better.